This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, today, we've got actually two people with us. Uh, we have Jeff Herman, uh, who's the CEO of Fabric 8 Labs, where the 8 is a number, so Fabric 8 Labs, and Ian Win- Winfield, who's their director of product. And uh, so welcome to the show, uh, uh, Jeff and Ian. Thank you, guys. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks, guys. Definitely a pleasure. And uh, yeah, so so what is Fabric 8 Labs? You probably haven't heard of them, but they they've, have uh, managed to secure, I think it's about, about 23 million in funding in total. And they have a metal technology uh, that is a completely different way of metal printing, essentially. Uh, it's like a uh, it's kind of a technology that we usually find a little bit more in the uh, the MEMS and uh, the lithography t- side of things. And, uh, and essentially, it's an electrochemical process that uh, manufactures uh, layer by layer in an atomic scale using electrochemical process parts. So it's a completely different way than manufacturing using lasers and heat and stuff like that. And uh, so it's a very exciting uh, technology that hopefully is going to turn out to be quite accurate and uh, scalable and also uh, significantly cheaper than the, the current uh, 3D printing technology. So, yeah. I think we're, we're literally the trifecta. How much of this is true? <laughs> <laughs> That's literally everything. It's and then ch- it's cheaper. Yeah. It's more yeah. accurate and it's less dangerous. It's basically the same. How are you guys doing this? Uh, uh, nobody said less dangerous. Max. <laughs> well, fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. We, do, we do see a lot of benefits in terms of the raw materials. And, you know, by not using uh, powder based material, we're able to avoid a lot of the challenges with, with handling of powders, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. our, our feedstock is based off of a commodity metal salt, mm-hmm. um, typical to what you see in other electroplating uh, technologies. Mm-hmm. And it's a fully dissolved uh, 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 feedstock. So we have metal mm-hmm. ions in our water-based solution. Mm-hmm. And that's how we're able to uh, deliver a really low-cost feedstock uh, for mm-hmm. the overall process. So are, so are you like charging some particular point on the print bed so to speak and then the ions are attracted to it as a result and they kind of bunch yeah, up exa- exactly so in traditional electroplating uh, you have an anode and a cathode and you're passing right. current through a bath as you pass current through the bath you're depositing at the atomic layer uh, atoms of the metal that's dissolved in the solution where our innovation comes into play is we we've taken away to pattern that metal dynamically on the fly using our print head. And so typically in electroplating, how you do that is you put down a photolithography mask that allows you to shape one layer's deposit, then you have to go down, put another mask, and you build up those layers to form your 3D object. Our big innovation is we took uh, some display technology and broke the anode into individually addressable pixels. And what that allows us to do is dynamically shape the anode to whatever mask shape we need for a particular layer. So we take all that manual processing out of uh, a traditional process called LIGA, and now we can build large 3D structures using an electroplating process, which is uh, a huge accomplishment and something that is really impactful to the 3D printing market. Yeah, so mm-hmm. essentially, rather than using a photo mask, we're digitally masking 
to control the electric field. And that enables, enables us to do this dynamically. Can you do this like one layer at a time, like a, like a resin printer or style, yeah. if you will? Today, we do it layer by layer. In the future, it will be a continuous build process uh, mm -hmm. where we match the build speed at each individual pixel and the part is uniformly extracted from the plating path. Very similar to the SLA printers, our print head's at the bottom of the reaction chamber uh, and then the parts on a Z stage moving vertically away from the print, uh, print head. And we're jetting our solution across that array to clear out bubbles and replenish the solution. And it gives us a very repeatable, reliable deposition uh, that has been yeah, quite reliable and has scaled down to very, very fine resolutions. Mm -hmm. And it's all driven by the pixel pitch on that print head. How long does it take to put down like a layer per se? I, I mean, I realize it depends on how much of the layer you're filling up, but how fast is this printer? <laughs> yeah, the, the benefit of our process, we're printing the entire layer at once. So it doesn't matter if you're utilizing 10% or 100% of the array, uh, you're mm -hmm. still depositing that layer at the same rate. The, the big difference is how quickly you can move the Z stage away from the print head. Um, and it's not our primary focus today. We're focused on quality, resolution, uh, and demonstrating the kind of range of capabilities of our process. Uh, but our production systems will target two millimeters vertically per hour. And as you mm -hmm. scale that across a very large build area, it becomes a very compelling kind of build rate uh, compared to other technologies in the market. But how are you going to make a large build area then? Because that, yeah, that so would be big math. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the, the node that we build our print heads off is mm -hmm. already scaled for large televisions. Mm -hmm. So today we have a very small print head because it's easier for us to develop on a smaller. Uh, form factor, but as this technology matures and we get to our, our commercial machines, the print heads will be roughly 12 by 18 inches, which gives mm -hmm. you a lot of real estate to build a lot of small parts or build mm -hmm. fairly large parts mm -hmm. all in a single print. And I know it's very tempting because a lot of people in the past have tried to do this like we are the fabric, the manufacturing technology for everything. But in reality, if we look at like the 3D printing world, if we look at how technologies compete and different printers and stuff, it's usually there's like certain application areas are called like an application window where a certain technology like outperforms other ones like significantly. And, you know, so, so do you guys have areas where you're like, well, that would be really perfect for us, like, like particular application areas? Definitely. So, you know, our process comes out of the clean rooms, the men's fabs, and that's where we excel most. The strongest materials for us out of the the gate is pure copper, and pure copper has a lot of benefits in electronics manufacturing, uh, as well as in thermal management applications. And that's really mm -hmm. where we've started our focus mm -hmm. and where we've seen the most traction uh, because mm -hmm. we can deposit pure, highly conductive copper mm -hmm. uh, fairly easily in very you know complex geometries. That's mm -hmm. where we get companies coming to us every day asking us if we can print their part uh, because there isn't a good solution out there today in the market if you're looking for something that has high electrical or thermal properties. So, and, the, and another important element there is that the process operates at room temperature. So we're able to deposit this really high quality copper onto temperature sensitive substrates. So it makes mm -hmm. it very attractive in the semiconductor packaging, mm -hmm. uh, I see uh, PCBs packaging. and things like that. So we can effectively do a direct write process onto those uh, temperature sensitive substrates. Does that mean you could also the, theoretically do like biomasses of some kind? Like you could lay a substrate of metal down on a, on a biological thing? I mean, obviously it's being submerged, but I'm just wondering in general because you're not doing it at a high temperature. Definitely. Yeah, it, it opens a lot of possibilities that just aren't even an yeah. option when you look at a thermal-based process. As long as we've got a conductive path to the ground, we can deposit on anything. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, that, that's interesting. So, but then you're limited to the electroplating materials, right? So you can't do everything. But hey, Culper is already really exciting already. But um, but right. then okay, IC packaging I think would be really exciting then, and and yeah, anything and heat sinking would be like or heat sinking heat management would be really exciting then as well, right? Yep, RF applications, and then uh, several of the electrodeposited metals have a lot of applications in the medical device area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's not our focus today, but we know there's materials there we can develop and go after different medical devices, surgical tools, electrodes. Uh, and mm-hmm. then we've developed some specialized nickel alloys for um, some other uh, medical applications that we're working on. So there, mm-hmm. there, we benefit from over 100 years of electroplating experience that's been developed for surface coatings. We can take mm-hmm. those baths, we can modify them to be used in our printing system. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a pretty large library of materials we can go into for different applications. But again, every day we get more inquiries for pure copper. So that's primarily where we're focusing today. And in fact, I think LAM is, uh, is one of your investors, right? And they're also like, they do IC packaging and stuff like that as well, right? So Yep. Yeah. LAM Capital's invested in our Series A. If you look at our other investors, Intel mm-hmm. Capital, uh, mm-hmm. TDK, it kind of resonates with our focus on electronics. These guys mm-hmm. know what packaging is and how ICs and uh, different electronic components are manufactured. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their backing of our technology is a, a strong indication of kind of where our strong suit is today. But we mm-hmm. do feel we're just scratching the surface of the capabilities of our process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do think that application space will widen over time. But yeah, you know, also like things like connectors and stuff like that could be really interesting as well. Huh? Yep. Well, there's a whole host of stuff, though, that I could come up with just off the top of my head that you could do with this. That's pretty cool. Like, yep. Even you look at the like, whole range of yeah. packaging, all the way down to the wafer, all the way up to the connectors. There's exactly. applications that we can yeah. disrupt across the entire manufacturing chain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so it remains, I mean, it's nice to say medical and stuff, but it remains kind of like, even if you would be, which I think is really exciting, If you even if you would only do ICE packaging, like you could become a, quite a big company just only doing that, right? <laughs> or only, uh, or only sticking to this electronics area. There's like there's literally like millions of parts to be made, right? In this area, right? Definitely, and our process is very well suited towards high volume applications because our feedstock is so low cost. Because our printers themselves are so low cost, uh, you can really think about bu- building millions or billions of components using this process and still have a business case for why that's better than a traditional manufacturing process today. And, and you can use any electroplating stock, like that's on the market, essentially? Uh, we t- theoretically. Theoretically, <laughs> yes, but we always want to ensure the best product out of our printer, so we're formulating our own baths based on right, right. the chemistries that are available in the market. So there's- But I mean, but like brass, silver, gold, copper, you know, all these yeah. things. From a material yeah. availability standpoint, certainly. Um, we we tune the chemistry to work in our process because we do have different processing mm-hmm. parameters versus a conventional electroplating. But yeah, mm-hmm. that gives you a good insight to the other markets we're pro- you know interested in targeting. I think that's really interesting. So, what is your go-to-market thing? Is it like, do I buy a machine at one point? Is it a service? How does that work? Yeah, we're 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 still playing with the different business models. Our approach to getting this technology in the market has been to focus on partnering with a market leader in each of these verticals we're targeting. Uh, show them the capabilities, find where the sweet spot is, uh, and then do development programs to demonstrate that capability at volume um, with the goal of getting our commercial machine out and available to the market kind of end of next year will be our 
first uh, market offering. It'll be a smaller form fact printer that's great for research and development and certifying the process in different application spaces. Uh, and then followed up by a specialized machine that will go after the higher volume manufacturing opportunities. Mm -hmm. Do you have uh, an idea of what the cost could be for that machine? For the small one? Or yeah, the small one, uh, which will be 100 millimeter by 100 millimeter build volume, uh, build area, sorry, uh, will be about $75,000 is where we're initially going to enter the market. Uh, we think that's a good price point for the capabilities the printer's offering. Um, but again, it's, you know, ever-changing as we kind of further develop our business model and understand what the opportunities are in each of these verticals. Because we are enabling a lot of new technology, new designs that aren't capable, aren't able to be produced in any other way. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's definitely opportunities for us to generate IP there that we can then further license and, and use to our advantage. Oh, heck yeah. But yeah, really, uh, building, the, building the technology as a platform. So it can be our OEM equipment, it can be integrated. Um, there's a lot of opportunities to attack the different verticals. Yeah, with electronic packaging specifically, uh, you know, we're going to specialize that equipment to be plugged into a wider manufacturing chain such that yeah. the substrates that they're utilizing can be easily adapted and uh, integrated into our printing system. And it will sit on, you know, a factory floor at some of these MEMS fabs and uh, mm -hmm. pump out parts day after day. Yeah, I can easily see how you could plug this into an assembly line. Or a fab plant. And then yeah, and they're uh, already using electrochemical deposition in these fabs. It's just a much cheaper, faster, efficient way to do it. And it opens new capabilities. One of the big limiting factors in photoresist is you have a, an aspect ratio limitation. You can only plate into photoresist so much. Uh, mm -hmm. So that either requires you to do several processing steps, which is expensive, or just limit your features to a one-to-one -one aspect ratio. Our process eliminates that, throws that out the window and opens new capabilities uh, that our partners are very excited about. Mm -hmm. Have you guys made any kind of big, solid pieces yet to, to see what happens when you're going on that route rather than the microprocessor route? We have, yeah. So that's another, you know, area of focus, right? <laughs> <Is that right? laughs> so, you know, when we look at thermal management, you need to build big pieces of copper to get some of the thermal mass that's required. So we have done that and it's been successful. and. Uh, we're excited for that aspect of the business, which is very different than the IC components, which is these smaller form factor, lots, thousands of parts on a single build versus a large, you know, thermal management system that is uh, very dense and has internal cooling channels and takes the advantages of 3D printing to the next level. And yeah, it's been quite exciting. And we have some strong partnerships in that area. And we'll hopefully be releasing some white papers early next year to demonstrate how our process can kind of produce the next gen thermal management system and, uh, you know, demonstrate it at a cost point that makes sense for mass market. And what are you saying? I think I remember reading somewhere that you're saying that you're like 10 times, well, you're significantly cheaper. I mean, what are we talking about in terms of the feedstock or the part cost? Like what, what kind of cost picture are we talking about there? Yeah, we, we, we want to be 10 X lower than the other added manufacturing processes. And then in line with the traditional manufacturing process. So you get mm -hmm. all the benefits of added manufacturing at a price point that a customer would be traditionally, you know, aware of. And mm -hmm. we're able to remove a lot of the process steps. If you take copper or sulfate out of the ground and then you purify it into billets and then turn it into wire, atomize it into powder, transport it. We're taking copper sulfate and directly putting it into our feedstock 
So in a way, you can think of the process also as it's in, we're 3D printing, but we're also doing in situ refinement of the copper material while we're printing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, across the board, there's there's cost savings. I mean, the feedstock itself is cheaper just because of the raw materials we're utilizing. The power consumption of our systems is an order of magnitude lower than the thermal-based systems. And the printhead itself, because of the manufacturing techniques we're using, is just a lot lower cost than the binder jet printheads or um, something you'd see in a laser system. And those three things together, and you get to a a cost point, you know, price point that is much more compelling than what we see from other additive processes on the market today. I'm astounded. Actually, yeah, uh, I'm astounded actually that no one came up with this earlier. Actually. Yeah, right. I know, <laughs> yes, not, it's not that, not that, like I think it's great what you guys are doing. It sounds really amazing, but it's, there's so much innovation. There's so many people active in that area that you would expected people to come up with this a bit earlier on. You know. Yeah, the timing on when we started a company was probably one of the factors that led us to bringing this process to market. The the technology that's in our print head uh, was commercialized for other reasons. Uh, but if you don't have that piece of the puzzle, you, you can't make this process work. And mm-hmm. so we benefited from a lot of technology that's developed for smartphones uh, that if you tried to do this process 10 years ago, you just wouldn't be able to do it. You The devices, the manufacturing techniques of that grid of electrodes was not mm-hmm. at the point where you could use it for electrochemical deposition. Because it's, it's like a thin film printhead, right? Or Correct, yep. And what does that even mean? Because I've done stuff with thin film, but I don't know what a thin film printhead is because that's like, you know. Yeah. So at a, at a nutshell, if you look at your phone screen or your computer mm-hmm. monitor, it's comprised of two components, a back plane and a front plane. The back plane is all the, the circuitry that allows you to multiplex an array of electrodes. And that has changed significantly in the last five years, specifically for OLED technology. And that is what's enabled us to use that backplane for a new purpose, and in our case, electrochemical deposition. Um, and that, yeah, was one of the critical factors in allowing this technology to come to reality now versus maybe 10 years ago. And, and does that mean that I can go out and go buy a bunch of these things and do this as well? Or <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, the, one of the big Ask barriers. for a friend. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The big barrier to entry is manufacturing these devices. There is, it's all done over in Asia. It's done by a handful of parties at massive scale. So building the relationship with those fabs and getting access to those capabilities is, was a big challenge. And, and part of the reason why IMEC was one of our early investors is they're a big research firm out of Europe. They have those relationships with the NFAB partners, really helped us develop those relationships that it gave us access to these high-end fabs to manufacture our printhead. Mm-hmm. And so that's so, a critical, critical factor. And one of mm-hmm. our early wins is bringing them on as an investor made a big difference in our ability to scale and, and move this technology forward at a quick pace. Okay. I was going to ask, do you mind if we talk a little bit about the investment process and, and what it took for you guys to convince some people of this? Sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Did you find it particularly challenging to go in and be like, we want to tip metal printing on its head? Or were people really receptive? <laughs> Initially, very receptive, but once they got into the technology, started talking to other electroplating experts, that's where we had a big challenge. Because if you talk to somebody who's been electroplating for the last 50 years, what we're doing is very counter to how how electrochemical deposition is typically done, which is you keep your electrodes very far apart, you use a mask to shape the deposit, and you want uniformity out of your printhead. What we're essentially trying to do was the exact opposite. So it took 
a lot of work to overcome kind of the legacy understanding of how electrochemical deposition can be used. Um, so we'd find, yeah, investors would be very excited about the capabilities. But then when we talk to experts in the field that have been doing electroplating for a long time, they run into issues around, well, this is very counter to my understanding of electrochemical deposition. So really, we had to prove it out, demonstrate the capabilities, and then really turn those people around. And once they saw the technology and understood how it was actually working, uh, that was the big aha, you know, how did we not think of this kind of moments that were always very exciting when you're kind of in the fundraising step, when you get that person to understand how it actually works and how this is game changing and get them on your side. Uh, and then from there, it's, yeah, it's been fairly easy. The, the long-term opportunity for this process is huge. Uh, the fundamentals of the science is very compelling. And our ability to generate a lot of IP in the space was also very kind of exciting for investors and, and helped us raise the capital we have and has put us on the trajectory that, that we are kind of moving towards. I noted that you had uh, Mark Cuban as one of your investors. Is that correct? He was our first investor. Yeah. So, oh, wow. <laughs> How did that happen? So very early on, we had a concept. We had a, you know, a, a, a diagram and how we thought it would work on a, a paper napkin. Uh, we knew what some of the benefits would be. We put together a pitch deck, started sending it out to angel investors, uh, and we found Mark Cuban's email on, online. We shot over the deck, uh, and he responded very quickly. And after some back and forth explanation on what we're trying to do, what our backgrounds were, how uh, we think this could be a really disruptive technology, um, he came and gave us our first check, which really allowed us to build our first demonstrator, file our initial patents, and really get that foothold in the kind of fundraising ladder uh, to go out, raise more funds, grow the technology, demonstrate more and more, file more patents, and get to where we are today, which is we've got a you know, very functional demonstrator where we can prove out very difficult applications using our system. And now we're scaling to our first production system, the Gen 2 system. Mm -hmm. And how did you guys get started a little bit before that? How, how, where, was the, where did the idea come from? How did you guys get together as a team? Yeah, we were uh, just looking for interesting ideas in the additive space. We were seeing what Carbon 3D were doing. We are sat with desktop metal, all the money they were raising. We thought there had to be a better way to get away from powder. And, and that's where we really focused. We looked at uh, things that would be done in the clean room using electrochemical deposition. We looked at what Carbon 3D was doing. Um, and we took those things, we combined them together and thought the concept would work. Talked to some experts. They told us there's no way it's going to work. Uh, you know, kind of put that aside, did some demonstration work ourselves using a very crude implementation of our technology. Got comfortable that there might be something there. And then, yeah, started the fundraising process, left our jobs, started working out of a garage got into an incubator program down here in San Diego called EvoNexus that was very helpful with us kind of getting connected into the community that has helped us get to where we are today. Um, and then, yeah, bringing on some early investors like IMEC and Stanley Black & Decker really helped us take this technology out of the lab and start commercializing it to the point uh, where we are today. You guys are doing this in, in Silicon Valley or where, where are you guys right now? No, we're in, we're in San Diego, California. So we're in La Jolla, right near UCSD. We actually use their facilities quite a bit in the manufacturing of our print heads. Uh, mm -hmm. I was in the Bay Area. My partners were down here in San Diego. We actually all grew up in San Diego. Uh, we saw the program down here with Evo Nexus and the capabilities at UCSD. 
and decided this would be the prime location for us to set up shop and, and build our team. And is that more, more relaxed, cheaper? Is, is there other advantages to doing it there? Or? Close uh, there to wind. Is- <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a beach, of course. <laughs> it is slightly lower cost in the Bay Area. Um, yeah. But really, we looked at the other companies in the area, so 3D Systems, HP, have big headquarters down here. We thought there would be a tool, uh, a pool of a talent down here that we could tap into, and that's certainly been the case. Mm-hmm. And what have the challenges been? I mean, the, the fundraising thing seems to have gone really well. I mean, uh, uh, what have the, the bigger challenges been for you guys so far? Making sure we stay focused. Uh, we get applications coming at us every day that are the next big thing. And it's, it, you know, it's hard to remain focused on one or two key applications that we want to start with. Um, and that was critical in the beginning where we said copper is going to be our material. Let's focus on copper. Let's build our process around copper. Um, the biggest challenge, yeah, was saying no to some very interesting applications that uh, we think we'll get to down the road, and, and remaining focused on what we see as the killer apps, which definitely is, you know, in copper, the ICs, the electronics, the RF, and the thermal management applications. And then building the team out has always been, you know, making sure we find the right people that have the same uh, vision for the technology as we do, uh, to make sure that we stay moving in the direction we know that this technology could be a, a big game-changing technology and we want to make sure that we bring it to market in the correct way and we establish the partnerships to make this a, a long-lasting, impactful business. Or like a financial end goal as well? Or is there something you want to be an independent company? Or Yeah, I think we want to grow, go public and you know be the next EOS, focusing on our, our technology as a platform. There'll be you know, we see six or seven deviations from our core product that can address other applications, other big markets. Uh, you know, we see everything from using our print heads on robotic alarms to do repair of large structures down to doing stuff in the, the sub one micron range. Uh, there's a huge range of capabilities that our process, once developed, can, it can tackle. And it, we think it will serve a pretty broad a set of applications and, and be a fairly large business that could effectively change and push forward a lot of the applications that we're targeting. So I always ask this of every metal printer. Can you repair tooling? <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. So one of our early projects, we got an SBIR and that was focused on repair application. It's been very successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a lot of tooling is made of copper right now. Uh, so, right. Well, I mean, when, well, yeah. but eventually, <laughs> yeah, when we develop some of our nickel alloys, stainless steel replacements, there's no reason we couldn't go back and fix a gouge or the areas that have worn down. That's a big advantage of our process is you can start with the bulk material. If you're just adding some features to a piece of steel, we can come and add those fine features at a much lower cost than print the whole part or try to machine that part into the, the shape that you're looking for. I still think the robot arm thing is a bit mystifying to me how that would work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so as as long as we've got a conductive surface to start on and we can get our electrode array in close proximity to the the surface that we're trying to repair, we can localize the electric field to fill in gouges, build up material in certain areas, um, and that that allows you to kind of resurface a number of different parts. But again... Mm -hmm. That's the remain focused part. We're not focused on that today, but we know there's yeah, right, right. A, a application space there that our technology mm-hmm. is well suited to serve. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, a lot of people always like, you know, I think saying no is super important. If I look at friends of mine, like the, the, the parts where they said no is, is, is some of the most important decisions they've made. But so how do you go to like a decision like, okay, the corporate decision seems super obvious, right? Like we need small things that are high value, then, you know, you're going to go for copper quite easily and quite quickly, I think. But how do you focus, like, you know, how do you decide to focus on the, the few of those application areas, like I see packaging and stuff? Do you do market research? Do you talk to a lot of people? How do you get the information to make that decision? Yeah, we have a pretty comprehensive process we go through when a customer reaches out and wants to do a project with us. And we're, we're balancing the internal development goals we have as a company to bring this process to the level that we think it can achieve with the part the customer is trying to achieve. So if there's a match there where they're trying to build a feature with the complexity in that size that we're trying to do internally as our development program pushes the technology forward, that's typically how we find the best matches. If a customer is asking for something that's just too small for us to do right now or is not in line with the general development efforts we're doing internally for our process, uh, that's stuff that we typically say, hey, guys, we think there's an opportunity here, but let's talk in six months or a year when we have more alignment in our internal development program with your end part. And, and mm -hmm. our big drive right now is to drive resolution as small as possible. So print smaller and smaller features, uh, get the keep the quality of the copper as high as possible. So applications that require very good thermal properties are stuff we're excited about. Uh, parts that require features that are sub 150 microns, stuff we're excited about. And then stuff that requires very fine surface finishes, like an RF, is another area we're, we're super excited about. So if we can demonstrate those capabilities with a partner, um, it just demonstrates to the market that this new process actually can meet some industry problems. You know, you look at the powder-based systems, you're always going back, you're machining the surface finish on those parts. We want to... We want to build parts that are ready to use right out of a printer, and that requires us to kind of fine-tune all these different aspects of our process. And if we can find a partner that has a part that matches that same end goal, uh, there's no reason we shouldn't be working with them to demonstrate that part along the way. How do you and how do you work together? Is it like like does the, is it you do a proof of concept together? Does the partner pay? How, how do you kind of work? How do you just shape that deal with that partner? Yeah, today our main focus is finding these companies, developing a proof of concept project, and then maybe rolling that into a larger joint development effort if, if the POC is successful. And that's led us to the success we've had today with our partners bringing in the investors because they see the market traction and they can talk to an end customer, understand how our process is actually solving their problem. Mm -hmm. And then once that JDA or POC is completed and our printers become available, we can start using those printers to either produce those parts for the end customer or sell that equipment into their suppliers to start producing those parts. Mm -hmm. So it'll help us demonstrate some real world applications. I mean, we're a new process. It's very different than everything else on the market. So we want to have as many partners and actual real world demonstrations as possible as we come to market uh, so that people can go and look at these projects and understand that this is real. It's not vaporware and it can actually do. Uh, what the end customer needs it to do. And also, I think it's interesting because like a lot of people, like the trap is you end up building like a kind of custom machine for your customer. <laughs> kind of. uh, mm. uh, you end up kind of like making exactly what your customer wants, but maybe only them or the rest of the market. And so are, are you really focused on your roadmap? Is it really like the roadmap is key here or you know, or, or does the quality of the customer or the, the size or whatever, does that factor into it at all? 
it factors into it. But again, yeah, we've raised capital through our investors for uh, the main reason of developing our, our process internally. We know the bounds of where our technology can, can reach. And the faster we can demonstrate those capabilities and refine the process to do that repeatedly, repeatedly and at the cost points that we want is much more valuable than specializing the equipment for one end use. So mm-hmm. for us, it's very easy for us to make the decision saying, hey, we need to focus on the core technology because that ultimately gets us to the next funding step to build this technology and this company even bigger. Uh, and if we can find partnerships in industry, and we have that match mm-hmm. with that internal goal, then we have uh, you know, a match made in heaven and, and, and something we can get really excited about. If it mm-hmm. takes us off that path and takes us in a different direction that we don't think is in line with our internal roadmap, it's very easy for us at this point to say, hey, let's come back, circle back in a year uh, mm-hmm. when we may have more resources to do a more specialized development track uh, for mm-hmm. your particular application. We, we're definitely not saying no, but mm-hmm. in the meantime, let's demonstrate something that's more in line with our, our individual core roadmap. But you're already kind of already thinking of that, hey, and then we raised $4 million or $5 million in the beginning, or raised, before we raised money in the beginning, the seed capital. And we took a $4 million round. Now, I think this, earlier this year, you took another $19 million. And you're already kind of in the back of your head thinking, like, we'll do another round. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. No, we, we want to scale this business as quickly as possible and mature the technology as quick as possible. And that's going to require continued funding from investment partners. And we think there's a, a big desire. People see the long-term capabilities and the value in what we're doing. Uh, so mm-hmm. there's definitely at least one more large round uh, in the, the pipeline. But uh, after that, you know, we haven't fully decided on what our strategy would be. Do, that's interesting do you have a horizon idea of when you become profitable? Is it, is it like five years out or 10 years out or you're not sure? I think it's sooner than 10 years. Uh, okay. Close to five years. But the focus, again, is we, any revenue that's no, coming from the company yeah. is going to be reinvested into the technology. Uh, because, you know, if we go for profitability today, I think it really reduces our ability to scale the company and uh, increase the reach of our technology. And that just doesn't seem like the right decision at our stage. Yeah, but I, th- I do think that it's really interesting to note that the Silicon Valley approach has not been very successful right now actually coming up with like actual manufacturing technologies for our industry, right? Are you doing something that's going to make you different or? I I definitely think so. I think our approach where we have signed some very large joint development efforts with end users uh, to get that technology into their hands sooner is going to end up with a better result uh, than what we've seen in some of the other added manufacturing companies. We have brought those guys early into our development process such that we know we have some applications along the way as we develop and refine the technology. And those partnerships will fruit, uh, you know, actual applications, actual manufacturing sooner than if we were just working alone, developing a product that we think is going to address applications and, and then dumping it on the market and hoping there actually is an end use for the technology. Yeah, I think that, that, that seems really smart. I mean, I think um, and then, and how do you pick, like you said, you wanted like one partner per industry. How do you pick the partner per industry? Is it just the person you run into first or do you have like a kind of vetting process or? Yeah, or we, it- we want, we want to work with the market leader. So, uh, if they don't come to us, we'll go to them. And usually we have enough compelling case in their application, uh, to get them on board and, and understand why this is impactful. 
And uh, we haven't had any issues getting those parties to sign up to a, a development effort with us. And, and so the interesting thing is that the, in being in San Diego and on the East Coast, you could do a lot of business and businesses quite close to you. Do you even have like an internationalization strategy or are you guys like uh, the, the United States or even like the, 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 the this part of the country is enough for us? There, there's been a lot here near us, but we've also had a lot of uh, good partners in Europe. Uh, we found that uh, some of the additive manufacturing work that is well aligned with our roadmap is happening in Europe, um, and we have no problem working with people across the across the world. I mean, that's been one thing that hasn't been a big limiting factor is having a partner in our backyard. We more than happy to work with a group out of Germany uh, or out mm-hmm. of Japan if they are the market leader and they're driving the technology to its Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the next level, we want to be a part of that development effort, get our process built into their roadmap such that, you know, when they release their next gen product, it's mm-hmm. dependent on our manufacturing process to help support that. And, and what we've also seen is that a lot of startups have struggled. There's a couple examples where I think three times in a row, the largest desktop 3D printer manufacturer, well, it kind of stumbled and, 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 and went from 20,000 units to 4,000 units the next year because of, of manufacturing issues, right? So the scaling of manufacturing is also very difficult. And have you guys looked into challenges of how to get these things manufactured and how to get a lot of them made? We have. And I think that's also part of our strategy, working with these big partners. Uh, you know, we're looking at more sustainable growth of the technology, not trying to deploy 4,000 printers in a year, especially uh, at the price point that we're talking and the value that these printers deliver, we're looking at a much less aggressive uh, scaling of number of printers and focusing on the highest dollar return of mm-hmm. our technology, where one mm-hmm. printer could make a significant revenue change for these end partners. Uh, and they seem to be more than willing to share that with us because they get a market advantage. Uh, do you actually sign a deal like you are going to be our only IC packaging supplier or is it just... Uh, you know, is it literally, do you commit yourself to that or? We don't necessarily at this point, uh, we, you know, may put down a future vision of if our technology can actually enable the next gen product in their industry. And Mm -hmm. we collectively think that it's good for us to corner the market and be the only people that can produce that part. Uh, then we definitely would entertain an arrangement like that. Okay. Okay. And how far do you plan ahead then? Because like, if you're looking at this, like it's actually, it's actually, how far does your roadmap last at the moment? What, what, what kind of timescale are you planning ahead for the business? Three years is our, our main focus. We look at, and that matches well with our customers' roadmaps. When they're mm-hmm. looking at what they're designing today and when that product might hit the market, uh, it's usually about a three to five year time scale. So mm-hmm. when we look at our technology today, we have a roadmap that goes out three years and is driven by a lot of those market and industry partnerships. Um, while aligning that with what we think is the internal kind of best path forward for our technology. Do you think you'll get a lot of competition, people doing similar things or similar applications? I think definitely as the market matures and they see what the capabilities are, I think there will be attempts to do something similar. But I think where we've really been successful, especially in the early years, is filing some very fundamental uh, patents that we we think give us pretty good broad protections. And the use of printhead. Have they been granted yet? They have, yeah. So we've got eight granted patents. We've got, yeah, uh, a slew of other applications and processes. It's a continual focus as Mm -hmm. our technology enables new things. There's IP generated, and we take advantage of that wherever possible. Okay. 
Oh, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. And yeah, we kind of asked already. We kind of know already, but we ask everyone this as well. Where do you guys want to be in five years? We kind of, you kind of half answered it, but maybe as a business <laughs> more, but. Yeah, we, we want to have a very large footprint in the copper added manufacturing space, have our equipment embedded with partners manufacturing millions or billions of parts per year, uh, and then expanding the technology into all the different markets that we think we still have strong business cases for. And that could be aerospace, it could be putting this into space, uh, our process, because it's not dependent on a powder bed, works very well in the low gravity uh, kind of environment. Uh, we see, we're just scratching the surface. We, we yeah. have so many opportunities. And as we get to the scale of the other big added manufacturing companies, and we can make investments into new application spaces that this will become a process that touches a lot of different industries, a lot of different applications, uh, and has a strong business case in, in all of them. Okay, well, thank you. What else are you going to do, though? <laughs> <laughs> so how long to conquer the earth? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, thank you. That's very, very ambitious. And uh, yeah, it's very, very exciting uh, stuff there. Uh, so Jeff and uh, Ian, thank you so much for, for being here today. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, guys. And yeah, Max, thank you for being here. Yeah, no, this this was exciting. I can't wait to see this uh, come to the market and uh, see the results. So yeah, yeah, totally, man. Me too. And and thank you for listening. My name is Joris Peels, and this is the Three D Pod. And uh, have a great day. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Three D Pod. For more information on what you just heard, or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.